zoom in uh, this morning on Jesus' interaction in the garden with uh, Peter, James and John. Uh, the scene with the crowd and Judas will come in the following weeks. But there are unique things, I think, for us to see as a church uh, about his interactions with uh, his closest disciples uh, there in the garden. So I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we look at that together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the unique insight of this moment in the garden, moments before his death, his interaction with Peter and James and John. We pray, Father, that as we see this scene together, that you would humble us, that we would see our part as a church and your part in our church, that we would see this clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, who appears in our scene here in Mark 14, he says to the Apostle Peter these wonderful words, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will overcome it. In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul declares this of the local church, churches like ours this morning. He says that this is how God is proving his wisdom in the heavens and on earth. It says in Ephesians 3 that uh, God shows the angels the local church and they tremble in awe at the sight of it. That God shows the evil forces in the heavenly realms, the local church, and it declares to them that he has won, that we are indeed his victory banner. That is how God views the local church and indeed that is how both the angels and the demons uh, view the local church. They are his decisive evidence of his victory and wisdom. And I think as a local church that reality should thrill us and it should stir us. We do want as a church to have uh, what the Bible would call godly ambition for the success of the church. And indeed churches all over Sydney and churches all over the world, we, we do want the wisdom of God and the victory of God on display in the world and the heavenly realms. But here's my question as we look at Mark 14 together. What would it look like for us to successfully build the church, if I was to use that word. And I think it is worth asking that question in our context here in Sydney. What does successfully building a church look like in a, in a city that is obsessed with success? A city that is driven by self-belief. What does it look like in a culture like that? Uh, I grew up in Sydney churches. I was trained in Sydney churches. But having been back in Sydney for perhaps as now as long as I was away, I, I am struck by a, a change in spirit. I am struck by signs that here in Sydney our attitude to success in building the church is becoming increasingly influenced by our city's obsession with self-belief. I felt it at conferences, uh, I felt it with even organisations that have come into existence in recent years, even what they're named uh, give this away. I, I've especially heard it in uh, podcasts uh, produced to encourage church workers uh, like myself uh, to be successful in building the church. I mean, here's an example. I listened to recently a popular ministry podcast running a series of uh, uh, episodes, if you like, uh, on getting better outcomes as a church. Uh, one episode particularly struck me. It was called this, Developing Leaders to Grow Your Church. Now, in one sense, that sounds like a fantastic thing to think about. And in many ways, I found the presentation very helpful. But some of the quotes capture what's at least making me feel uneasy. Here's a couple of quotes for you. 
the key to successful ministry has always been successful leadership. Well, this one. Leadership is the most important factor in the success of any church. Well, this one, and this includes all of us, a church will only be as good as its people. Or this one, everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, I must say, I've seen this type of thinking more and more as time goes on, and in one sense, it's hard to fault it. But there is something uh, out of alignment in the thinking. And in the short term, being out of alignment doesn't affect much, but, uh, and it's hard to see, but over time, the alignment does become a problem. And I reckon we are starting to see the outcomes of adopting our culture's view of success and self-belief in church life, not just here in Sydney, uh, all over the world. Uh, examples like devastating and destructive leadership, which hides ungodliness because, well, it's successful. Or looking for the wrong type of leaders. Uh, uh, there's been a phrase for many years in, in, in church circles that I've been a part of, that you are to look for people worth watching in terms of encouraging future ministers, but it now seems that what we're watching for is changing. Uh, we have a tendency to search for silver bullets to grow churches. An increasing number of ministers burning out, both here in Sydney and elsewhere. And I want to suggest to you that this culture of success and self-belief shows itself in church families as well. It's easy for a culture to grow where we hide our weaknesses and failings as people because we presume that everyone else around us at church is very strong. Or we have a reticence to serve because I can't do what others do. Well, here in Mark 14, on the edge of Jesus' cross, we have, I think, both a devastating and a liberating corrective to this false path that we tend to walk down. These verses place before us, under the microscope, the true DNA of the church, the church that God is actually building. It's, it's a DNA with two very simple strands, our weakness, his strength. Let's look at each of those in turn. And, and really in Mark 14, here's our weakness. It is this, pridefully not listening to God, but trusting ourselves. That's our weakness. And here's his strength, humbly heeding his Father and carrying all of us. And if you want to see that DNA captured in, in just a verse and a bit, uh, have a look at verse 27. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Uh, as Gavin said earlier, it's a quote from an old promise, Zechariah 13, that was read for us just before. Uh, Zechariah was prophesying in a time where God's people had turned away their hearts and their ears in unbelief. They refused to listen to the word of God's promise. And therefore the Lord made another promise. He would come in judgment. But remarkably, that judgment would also bring restoration. I wonder if you heard that in the reading. The Lord would strike one close to him, we're told. Uh, the shepherd in judgment and, and all would be scattered as a result. But we're then told that this striking and scattering would, would be part of the Lord's refining and restoration plan. That in the end, the, uh, the Lord would rebuild his people from their fall. He would gather them to himself and he says this in Zechariah, they will be my people, I will be their God. That's his promise. Now Jesus speaks this old promise on the edge of his cross. He speaks it to the disciples to reveal the purpose of the cross. Jesus is that shepherd. He will take the force of the judgment that his people deserve and, 
just as it's written in that prophecy in Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Or perhaps more familiar to us in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, he will strike the shepherd. But Jesus the shepherd knew that through this, God would do as he promised here in Zechariah, that he would bring the scattered near again. And of this gathered people, his church, God will say in Revelation 21 verse 3, you remember these words, they will be my people, I will be their God. There's the fulfillment of that promise. And so the church is formed by God fulfilling this old promise of judgment and restoration, of scattering and then regathering, of the shepherd being struck for the sheep. The DNA of the church is marked by two strands of that fulfillment. Our weakness, his strength. Again, if you've got Mark 14 in front of you, you see it there in verse 27. You will all fall away. That's our part. But I will rise and go ahead of you to Galilee. I mean, what a nonsense, therefore, to imagine that the success of the church rises and falls on our success. It rises because he rose. It rises in spite of our fall. Here's the DNA of the church God builds. You will all fall away, but I will rise and go ahead of you. And so let's watch those two strands play out in Mark 14 and see how it does, I think, liberate us from our culture's obsession with success and self-belief. First, have a look at our weakness through, well, the lens of these three disciples. Uh, uh, first, our weakness in not listening to God. Uh, and there are two moments of this not listening to God that, that come together, really, in this chapter with these three disciples, Peter, James, John. Uh, if you can remember back to Mark 10, Jesus was yet again announcing the path that he would walk, that he would suffer, and then he would die. And James and John, are, well, they're not really listening to that. It's as, almost as if they say to him, yeah, yeah, well, that's all well and good. But when the success bit comes, can we have the important seats? Not listening. And then again here in Mark 14, have a look at verse 27 again. You will all fall away, but I will rise and go ahead of you. But you see in verse 29, Peter's response Peter declared, you know, even if all others fall away, I won't. I'm fascinated by the word Jesus uses for what will happen to his disciples in verse 27. That word, fall away, it's, it's actually the same word that the Bible uses in 1 Corinthians 1 when it speaks of the world's attitude to the cross, that it's a stumbling block, that it's offensive to us. Uh, it seems that Peter's not listening and the others are not listening because in the world's eyes, this path that Jesus is walking is weak and foolish as a plan. They just can't see how success can come from this plan. And I sense this uh, at times in seminars that I attend. Uh, it's, a, it's almost as if, as if we have a quick Bible time, a quick gospel moment, and then we sweep that aside and we get on with the real effective strategies of the world. Do you notice that one part of what Jesus says here, the disciples fail to hear, and the other part they fail to believe? Here's the bit they fail to believe. But I will rise and go ahead of you to Galilee. They miss this huge promise of the resurrection. I mean, how could you miss a hope as big as that? Uh, Jesus says it, but they ignore that bit. And part of the reason they miss it is because the other part of what Jesus says in his promise is just so unbelievable to them. You will all fall away. That's what they get stuck on. What? Who, me? No. In, in fact, uh, as Peter and Jesus interact here, Peter is emphatic. I am stronger than that, Jesus. If 
fails to listen to what Jesus is saying to him. And here's the second part of the weakness that we see in these three disciples. It is the proud self-belief that is writ large in our own culture. In James and John's case, the self-belief takes the form of self-promotion. Uh, we would like the important seats, please, Jesus, in your kingdom. And again, sadly, all too often, even in church circles, the same ethic can prevail. Church can become the place where my identity or reputation is fostered, and I will do anything to protect it. In Peter's case, self-belief here takes the form of a refusal to concede that he might fall. You will all fall away. Oh, not me. Not true. Everyone else might, but I won't. And when Jesus ups the ante uh, of the reality of his coming failure and he, he tells him that he will deny him three times, uh, Peter is even more emphatic. He is absolutely confident in his own ability. I reckon Jesus is remarkably compassionate with him in these moments. Uh, in Luke's account of this same scene, we're told that he looked at him and loved him. And fascinatingly, he, in, in Luke's uh, account of this scene, uh, we're told that Jesus calls Peter by his old name, Simon, at this moment. It's, it's old name, old nature showing itself. Uh, and the irony is, do you know what the name Simon means? It means he who listens. The very thing Peter is not doing. Jesus says to Peter, you are not as strong as you think you are. Jesus calls the three disciples to follow him into the garden. Do you see that? Why, why does he ask them? To follow him. Uh, is he looking for company? No. He gently shows them by uh, following, uh, as they follow him into the garden, their own weakness so that they will abandon their trust in themselves and go to him for restoration. And do you notice what he asked them to do in the garden? Watch and pray. I wonder if that sounds familiar as we've gone through Mark's gospel. Do you remember Mark 13? Do you remember what Jesus says that the, the, the job of his church, his disciples, is to do as we wait for his kingdom, watch and pray? And so here it is. But Peter, in the midst of this, remains convinced that he can succeed in his own strength. The three of them in this scene are, are like overtired children, insisting that they're not tired despite the evidence. Three times they fall to sleep. It's an echo of the three-time denial that, but, that we'll see Peter commit next week. Jesus is showing them the reality of the kingdom that he is building. Our weakness, his strength. And that has not changed. Although we keep buying the myth that we are strong, as we watch Peter and James and John follow Jesus into the garden, we're meant to be learning the danger of our own self-belief. I mean, here's the truth. In the words of Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts himself is a fool. And yet our culture shapes us. It says, trust yourself. You're enough. You're the answer. You can do it. You're the champion. But Jesus' words to his dear friend Peter here, which means rock, uh, is his word to us. Simon, you are not as strong as you think you are. It is as the old uh, children's song declares, I am weak, but he is strong. That's meant to be the DNA of the church. Uh, let us not underestimate the overestimation we humans make regarding our own strength. But, and here's the other strand of the DNA of the church, uh, let us never underestimate how strong Jesus is. I mean, have a look at it in this scene. First is his strength in humbly carrying us all. Do you see the wonderful response of God to our weakness, our refusal to listen, our stubborn self-belief? I mean, follow the path of this scene. Verse 27, you will all fall away. 
If you look down to verse 50, uh, sorry, verse 31, they all said, no, we won't. Then have a look at verse 50. They all fled. And so he carries us all. That's the DNA of the church. We are what my uh, friends during university years used to call Terry Tagalongs. I played a lot of golf uh, in university years, uh, perhaps more golf than economics, but lots of golf. And I, I had a particular partner in the, the foursome uh, that we played, and he was a very, very good golfer. And I was a very, very not good golfer. And we generally won every game, but I brought almost nothing to each game in terms of the victory. And so over the years, I was known as Terry Tagalong, uh, simply there to tag along as the other guy uh, brought the victory. And I think that's the picture of us here. How obtuse it would have been for me to claim the credit in those games and how obtuse it would be for us in the church to claim the credit for the church. Remember why Jesus brings Peter, James and John along with him into the garden? It's not for company. He knows he's going to be abandoned. But so that they and we watching on with them can see the reality of our weakness but also the reality of his strength. So that we can see just what a heavy weight he held to carry us. I mean, watch him there in the garden. Watch, watch verse 32. Uh, he goes there to pray, we're told. Uh, and he prays to Abba, Father. It's personal. He, he knows his Father's voice. This is their plan. But now he prays this. He prays because here's a moment of decision for him. And uh, I wonder if you've noticed that every time that we're, we're told in Mark's Gospel that Jesus goes somewhere to pray, it's a moment of decision regarding his mission. Back in Mark 1, after he'd um, uh, healed many people, uh, there was a moment. Does he go down this path of healing as his focus or preaching? And we're told he prays and then he says, let us go elsewhere. I have come to proclaim the kingdom. Then again in Mark 6, uh, he feeds people and his popularity goes through the roof uh, with, with that. And again, there's this moment where he goes to pray. Uh, will he go down the path of popularity or will he go to the cross? And he chooses the cross. And here it is in Mark 14, the third moment of prayer. Does he carry our judgment on himself or does he leave us to carry it ourselves? And as we watch this decision point, we hear his prayer to his father. Not my will, but yours. And with these words, he makes, I think, an agonizing decision to carry our failure rather than to leave us to carry it ourselves. And you hear him, it is agonising. He says, Father, if it is possible to take this cup away, uh, can we do that? Jesus wants us to hear him pray this because he, he knows the answer and the answer is there is no other way. Which means anyone who would presume to save themselves or presume they don't need saving is silenced by this prayer. It is impossible. He must carry us. And the carrying of our sin and our judgment comes at an immense toll. And Jesus wants us to see it. You see it there described in verse 33 and verse 34. Look at the words used. We're told that he is distressed. I mean, that word literally means this. He was thrown into terror. He went through that to carry us. Then we're told he is troubled. Uh, and, and that word literally means lined up against the demons. He held the line, that line, against the demons to carry us. And then this word, overwhelmed for us, which is a word that means utterly surrounded by grief. He walked into that darkness for us all. What we're seeing here is the tragic and terrifying reality of our weakness 
our sin. We're seeing the true horror of the wages of our sin, death. Now the theologian Martin Luther said of this garden scene, nobody feared death like Jesus does here. That's quite a striking quote, isn't it? It's because he gets it. It's because he gets how horrific it is. And so let us look at this scene, I think, soberly. Here in a culture uh, that treats death merely as a transition or ignores it or jokes about it or even at times views it as a solution, here is death unveiled. Do you see what he calls it in verse 36? It is his cup to drink. Jesus prays that if this cup can be removed, uh, because he knows how terrible it is, uh, the cup is it's another picture that Mark's gospel has used to, uh, to, uh, to help us understand Jesus' death. There, remember last week we saw that he's the Passover lamb as he goes to die to keep us safe. That he will shed his blood to ratify the new covenant we heard last week. But now this, this is his cup to drink and it's the cup of his, God's wrath that he's drinking down for us. The wages of our sin that he drinks. Jesus' death involves more than just a crucifixion. He is not afraid of that. It involves him carrying our judgment on himself. And so consider this well as we look at this scene. Your eternity hangs on these words from Jesus. As he takes that cup and as he pleads for another way and yet he prays this, not my will but yours be done. And with that prayer he walks into the full force of our sin's judgment. That prayer and its proof on the cross in a matter of hours is the moment that God made a way to carry you and me from that hour to the final hour. What we're seeing here in Mark 14 is the success of our church is not built on our people, our leaders, our strategies or whatever else we may care to hold a conference about. It is built on that prayer. The DNA of our church has two strands, our weakness, his strength. Our weakness in pridefully not listening and trusting ourselves. His strength in humbly heeding his Father and carrying us all. Now next week I want to consider with you the difference that makes at a personal level as we watch Peter deny him. But as I finish, uh, 